Listeners, and welcome back aboard Costume Station Zero. I'm Bob Mitch, and today we're here with my third and final part of my chat with voice artist Wally Wingert. We'll be talking about Batman, Austin Powers, and the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, as well as more. So stick around, and here we go. So what I wanted to ask was, uh, in all the time that you've done the characters that you played, uh, whether for for stage or film or screen, uh, what are your views on attaining the character through performance versus through the costume. It was an interesting conversation we had yesterday with, again, with Mark Hamill. I don't want to name drop or anything, but we did talk about as he's standing there looking at the Batman costume, and he said, poor uh, Ryan Reynolds. He had to play Green Lantern, and it was all CGI and done in post. Mm-hmm. And he didn't get to feel that costume. It was right after the Chris Reeve conversation. You know, because Chris Reeve would put that costume on and the pull of the cape and the tightness of the fabric and the belt and the boots, and you felt like Superman, probably. Mm-hmm. When you put on the, the Batman costume, when you do the Captain Marvel, and when you put on, you feel that. Yeah. Because of the, the way the costume feels on your body, it all helps to build that character. And uh, Adam uh, developed certain characteristics for Batman because the some of the limitations of the costume that wouldn't ordinarily have been in the character if it was just a costume done in post. Completely. Com- because the way he would hold his head up, because he needed to look through the eye holes because the <laughs> cowl was slipping. But it gave Batman that posture of, you know, like he was larger than life and he was looking, you know, down his nose and he had this huge, like, stance, being able to not... You couldn't have anywhere to put your hands as you're standing there. So he would create these ways to fold his arms, and it gave the character an interesting dynamic of, like, sometimes the arms were crossed completely over the chest, other times he'd be playing with the pinky of his glove, or he'd be fiddling with the scallop on his glove. I was like, this is all cool character business Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have had if you you were just in a green suit that they're going to, you know... uh, chroma key out later and just put another CGI suit on. Yeah. And I said, they said, I told Mark, I said, they said the same thing about the makeup industry, as I remember four or five years back, where everybody's walking around the makeup show, glum, oh, CGI is going to take our jobs away and nobody's going to want makeup anymore. They're just, they'll just do it over the actor's face and CGI. And I said, never going to happen. I said, as a performer myself, mm-hmm. Um, and people like Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy, when they get in these amazing makeups and costumes to right. do these characters like Clump, you know, and Nutty Professor yeah. and Austin Powers, yeah. they need to feel that. They need to feel the teeth in their mouth, the, the buck teeth. Mm-hmm. Hello, baby, how are you? There's a sibilance <laughs> that those teeth give you for yeah. that character that you don't get when you, with just your regular teeth. Mm-hmm. But when you put those teeth in, there's a sibilance, baby, that sounds like Austin because he's got that sloppy ass. Yeah, yeah. And you, you don't have that normally. Mm-hmm. And to feel that in your mouth and to feel the glasses on and the wig and the tight, you know, Austin Powers costume and the little pointy-toed boots, you feel very 60s. And the same thing with you know, uh, Eddie Murphy with that huge fat suit on. Mm-hmm. You're not going to feel like a fat guy yeah. if you're just knowing that it's going to be in 
done in post later and they're going to add 300 pounds to you in, right. in post you've got to feel that sluggishness of all that of all the stuff that you're wearing same thing with Beetlejuice doing it for the show a lot of guys would just put uh, enamel tooth enamel on their teeth to yeah. to, uh, to gross their teeth out a little bit right uh, but but Keaton in the movie actually wore prosthetic teeth that gave him kind of a buck tooth appearance right and I said, well, you're, you're not really going to look like him unless you wear prosthetic teeth. And they had made prosthetic teeth up for the guys, but nobody would ever wear them. Mm-hmm. I had my own prosthetic teeth made by my own makeup guy. Wow. Because I didn't trust the ones that they were going to do were going to look right. So I gave them the stills, and I said, make my teeth to look like that. Mm-hmm. So there, there was Wally every day with the poly grip <laughs> and, the, and the prosthetic teeth. And I put them put them in my mouth and, hey, how they going to look good Because... The buck teeth threw your your lower jaw back, mm-hmm. and you would look like Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice because that's kind of what he did. Mm-hmm. So you almost kind of need to have that. So costuming, makeup, it all works to help. It, like I said, it's it's its own character. It's as much of a character. The costume and the makeup is as much of the character as your voice that you give it and your mannerisms that you give it. It all it all works together. Sure. I mean, look at Captain Jack Sparrow. Oh, of Johnny course. has the, yeah. the physicality and the thing, but those dreads hanging in his face yeah. and that sloppy costume with those sloppy boots, it all adds to the posture of that character and the physicality of that character. Mm-hmm. Lon Chaney, the greatest film actor of all time, I think. Uh, same thing. The way his costume fit was important to that each character that he was doing, be it you know Treasure Island or Phantom of the Opera or London After Midnight. He, I think he picked a. Uh, they did the same thing for Frankenstein. They picked a costume, or he picked a costume that was too big for him, mm-hmm. so he would look smaller in it oh, to take his physicality sure. there. So. To make Boris Karloff wasn't necessarily a big guy, but he had the face that they needed for the Frankenstein monster. So in order to make him look bigger, they shortened the sleeves yeah. of his coat. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, that's a regular guy's jacket, but look how long his arms are. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, longer than anybody else's yeah. arms. It's just that's why Jan. It's another Jan Kemp question. Mm-hmm. Was that I said, why did you not make Adam's boots like up to his knee, like in the comics? He says to make his legs look longer. Oh. And I was like, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Jan Kemp was such an underrated genius mm-hmm. when it came to designing costumes for that show. And I'm, I'm sad that he never got a film credit in the oh. end of the show. He never got a credit. Uh-huh. And had it not been for us having that chance encounter, mm-hmm. people still may not have ever known who did the costumes for that. And the costumes, like I said, were as much of the character... Of those characters as Roddy McDowell as Bookworm yeah. with his leather yeah, yeah. costume that looked like a book uh-huh. binding. Uh, King Tut's amazing bejeweled uh, robes that he would wear and all the great you know, villains and costumes that you know came their way. He said that Frank Gorshin asked him to create something other than the tights for the Riddler. He didn't want to wear the tights oh, right, yeah. throughout the whole thing. Uh-huh. He's like, uh, you know, Frank was talking about <laughs> how uh, the, the suit, the tights were so tight-fitting that um, he said, I figured as the Riddler, I'd have to jump around a lot and be crazy because Mm -hmm. I didn't want to stand still long enough because that suit was so tight, people would see everything. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't want to stand still too long. So I had to keep moving so people wouldn't see anything. So he says, I I really don't like these the tights. And I realize it's what it is in the comic. Mm -hmm. But can you come up with something else that I can wear a couple of times? So that's when he came up with the Riddler suit uh-huh. and the vest and the pants with the question marks on oh, it. And the, yeah, and the line, it, even the lining had, you know, was, was great. So, you know, Jan said, sure, I can come up with something. So you think of all of those villains and all of the great costumes that the villains had. Of course, the, the bookworm being one of the greatest with the, with the, the little reading light yeah. actually on his hat. Yeah. Brilliant. Who, uh-huh. how, does he, how did he think of that stuff? But he and I were so focused in on Batman and Robin. Yeah. That I was just, uh, you know, really curious about those particular costumes, sure. Know, in, in particular, but again, so so thankful that you were there at the right time because otherwise, a lot of this great information could have been lost forever. Yeah, and like I said, had that not happened, 
we we still may not know who the genius was behind that. So oh yeah, I'm glad that in his now in his memory, the people are still looking at that show on the hub, going, look at those costumes. Those are great. Those those are crazy. Another thing Jan said was that since it was one of the first shows in color, mm -hmm. that he wanted to use colors that shouldn't be together. Huh. You know, like green and purple and sure. and pink and and you know fuchsia. Colors that you're just not used to seeing together that normally any sensible guy would be like, oh, I'd never wear a tie that color with that color jacket. Right. No, let's put that together because it'll be just like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> so It is Batman in color. In color, right. you're right. So it's just funny to see that he could have gone a lot of different ways with that Batman costume. And if you see the uh, pilot, or not the pilot, but the screen test, the Lyle Wagner screen test, and Mark asked this question yesterday too. He says, in the in the Lyle Wagner screen test and the Adam West screen test, the cowls that they had had those big, long, pointy yeah. ears. Yeah. And he said, why didn't they keep those big, long, pointy ears? And I said, well, Jan said, for television. They wanted to be able to frame in on Batman, but mm -hmm. not cut the ears off. Ah. So they made the ears shorter. Mm -hmm level with the top of the head to frame it for television there you go yep so there's a reason for everything reason for everything, reason for everything. so uh and and in the screen test they just had a black bat on the gray leotard like the old style like the old style yeah like the serial right. had it but i think by then in the 60s they had started to use the the oval mm -hmm. and the reason dc had gone with the oval was that you can't trademark a bat ah. because it exists in nature mm -hmm. so what do they do well we have to make our own bat mm -hmm. in that it's gonna so we'll just put a yellow oval around it and then that will be our insignia got it so it can't be just a bat because it's like well you can't trademark a squirrel mm -hmm. uh can't trademark a turtle or a, mm -hmm. a pheasant right unless you make it a pheasant with a derby on it <laughs> you know right or a squirrel wearing a bow tie mm -hmm. you know well that's well that's skippy the squirrel that's our squirrel mm -hmm. so that's why they why they had to do that but it's just interesting that you know we had the forethought they used the cloth gloves for robin in the very first episode mm -hmm. and then they went with the leather because the cloth just wore out too much because they're climbing ropes and doing all this different stuff and you know, Batman had cloth gloves, but the palms of Batman's gloves were leather, mm -hmm. so it it was a little easier to make them more durable, and you got more more life out of them. But uh, yeah, just such amazing work that you know could have gone entirely unsung. Oof. And then in the Return of that was another thing that I really didn't like about Return of the Bad Cave, is they intimated that Jan Kemp was was gay. Oh. And they called him Jan, and it was this guy who was interested in talking to Burt Ward about his his package mm. and I was like really yeah not at all I'm sure Marge his wife Marjorie was would probably not be happy about no. the whole thing and I just thought you know there's a lot not to like about this movie and that's just one more thing not to like about it so again I was it wasn't a very high point of my experience in life. Yeah. Well, at least you were a part of it, even though it wasn't the best experience, as you say. Um, I was also thinking of how, uh, for Wild Wild West, um, you know, for James West to make him look taller, they went with that bolero jacket right. to cut him off and, and divide him. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah, no, all those tricks you were saying. Yeah, it's all a, all a trick of the eye. Um, Barnabas Collins, same thing. The regular Inverness coat goes down to the to the wrist, uh -huh. and goes down in some cases to the uh, ankle. Mm -hmm. um, but for Barnabas, they cut the cape to mid forearm, and the cloak up to his knee. Again, so you'd see more leg yeah. and you'd see more arm right. to make him seem taller and more imposing. There you go. So it's just a it's just a trick. <laughs> it's all how they... It's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. Smoke and mirrors. So this this brings up a good point. You, you started, um, obviously, just going for as best as you could do, but you're getting the read. You're getting, you know, working within your budget, within your time. And I always say everyone has to start there. Uh, working your way up, upgrading, uh, having the costuming addiction, as I say some people <laughs> have, you know, the upgrade-itis. you got to keep making it better, keep getting it closer. Right. Um, so ultimately, do you feel <coughs> it is more important to be as screen accurate as you can go as possible, or is it better to go for just the feel of the character? 
you're dealing with two different mediums, if, especially if you're doing a cosplay mm -hmm. thing live in person right. in front of people at a convention versus what they're used to seeing on film. Mm -hmm. Now, film, especially old digital, maybe not so much anymore, but old film stock will right. change the color of things. Oh, yeah. So you can have a completely screen-accurate Star Trek tunic, mm. but when you show up in person at a convention, people will say, why is it so green? Right. People didn't know that Captain Kirk's tunic was an avocado green. It was like a yellowish green hue. Oh, yeah. But the way that the Kodak film made it read was that it was yellow, that it was right. gold. Gold. Same thing with Spock's tunic, uh, which was actually a turquoise. Right. It made it read blue. Mm -hmm. uh, Scotty's was a maroon, which made it read red. Mm -hmm. So... When you see the Mego figures, uh, you know, they're made out of the yellow, blue, and red. And you yep. go, oh, that looks like what I see on TV. Yeah. But when you actually see the fabrics in person, mm -hmm. they're a whole different shade. Right. It's just how the film reads it. Now, then, then therein lies the quandary. If I'm doing it for up-close personal appearances, do I want it to look like the real ones because I know how they really look, I've seen the originals, or do I want it to register with the fan to how they're used to seeing it on television? Exactly. The Batmobile uh, in 1966. The, the pinstriping on the Batmobile was kind of a neon bright orange, mm -hmm. but it photographed red. So to me, when I see the Batmobile on TV, it's black and red. Uh -huh. But when you see the George Barris, it's that neon orange that right. I guess didn't read on the film mm -hmm. as any other color than red. Right. So if you had a Batmobile would it be better to have it the original George Barris orange and black mm -hmm. or go with what people are used to seeing on television have it red and black. Well right. I've always thought as cool as it is to have costumes exactly the way the real ones were made mm -hmm. to have it look like people are used to seeing it on television. Sure. So to try and match the colors that they that will register with their memory. Mm -hmm. So on-screen read versus on-set read. Exactly, yeah. Uh -huh. I want the on-screen read because film will read things, it will interpret things differently sometimes, different colors. Exactly. Uh, same thing with Christopher Reeve. His Superman costume was more of a turquoise. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be too blue, otherwise he'd key out. Right, during sure. the flying scene. Sure. So they had to have that kind of off blue that was in chroma in the field of chroma key. But you see it on screen and go, "Oh my gosh, that's such a great royal blue." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you see it at Warner on a mannequin and you're like, "Wow, that has a little green in it." It's yeah. kind of weird, yeah. yeah. So they uh, I don't know if they don't screen test these fabrics or if they color treat the film afterwards to make it look more like the colors they want or what, but it's uh, it's interesting to me that probably for television they don't have a lot of time to screen test a lot of these fabrics and they just kind of put it on set and go with it. Mm -hmm. But there's sometimes the film will play tricks and there's there's another thing too of where uh, people at San Diego Comic Con don't want to see a Batman with wood dolls on his belt. Sure. It was good enough for television and for Adam West but we weren't looking at it six inches away. Uh -huh. But people will be looking at it six inches away, so it has to be a little probably cooler than it was originally because it's being viewed by a completely different audience. Mm -hmm. um, I have a Phantom of the Opera um, Michael Crawford mannequin in, in my Cheney room in my house. It's sculpted to look like Crawford with the appliance on, mm -hmm. with, on, on the right side of his face. If you look at the photos that were taken backstage of him wearing the appliance, it's flesh and then some maroon just kind of brushed on. Yeah. Because for stage, people are seeing it from 50, 60 feet away from sure. 30 yards. Sure. Yeah. And that's got to read all the way to the back of the house. Mm -hmm. But if you're coming into my house and you're looking at it from six inches away, that's going to look dopey. Yeah. Like a third grader painted it. Right. So, I told Jim, my effects guy, no, no, paint it like you would a practical effect on a set yeah. that was going to be seen up close by a camera. Don't paint it to match that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interpret it how you feel it should. So he's like, okay. So he actually ended up putting some veins 
in it, mm-hmm. you know, to make it look more human, like a real human deformity, right? As opposed to a, a piece of uh, foam latex on an actor's face at the Amundsen Theater. Sure, sure. So it's all about uh, you know who your audience is. It's like you got to know your audience. That's oh yeah, as I always say, know the purpose of the costume exactly because yeah. you don't want to be on the San Diego Comic Con floor explaining to somebody. Well, no, you know, you see, in 1966, they did use a wood dowel like this with wood grain and everything. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to go there with them. Mm-hmm. They want to see something that they think they saw on television mm-hmm. 35 years ago in their imagination. Because the, in their mind, that was, like I said earlier, that was cool. Plastic and steel and yeah. things, and it was leather and everything was great. And... Uh, you know, that's what they want to see. They don't want to see anything less. You're representing the fantasy. Right. Mm-hmm. And while it was really cool for me to wear, at a couple of Star Trek conventions, my Kirk tunic, my avocado green Kirk tunic, yeah. only a couple people said, Aha! Yeah. A guy who really knows. Yeah. But when your group goes out in the Mego colors, right. people, that re- that resonates with them. Oh, the colors just pop. They, they just pop like, because yeah. that's what they're used to seeing mm-hmm. on that Kodak film yep. all those years ago and and how that film interpreted those colors mm-hmm. so it's it's fascinating uh, uh, conversation that only people like us would probably find <laughs> it even remotely interesting <laughs> um, I, I always ask everyone um, do, you, do you have any uh, memorable uh, or, or best moments you've had while wearing any of your costumes oh oh hanging out with Adam West mm-hmm. uh, as Batman is some of the best stuff mm-hmm. I never got to hang out with with Jonathan Frid while I was dressed as Barnabas, even though I was hanging out with some of the people he worked with on Dark Shadows, Catherine Lee Scott and a couple other people, that was that was kind of a thrill. But to be standing next to Adam West with me in the Bat costume and having him remember me saying back in 1980 when I first met him, hey Adam, someday I'm going to have a Bat costume. Nah. You know, like that one. Right. And now I really do, and I'm standing there with him, and... Uh, him giving me pointers on, you know, how to be Batman mm-hmm. and how to stand mm-hmm. and how to talk. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it's its a Skippy fan's dream come true. Sure. Well, going out and doing the charity work as Beetlejuice was great, especially when we went to, I, I remember they had said we're going to go do a charity, uh, an event. Um, so I got in really early in the morning. Mm-hmm. I did my makeup, knowing that it was not going to be on stage. It was going to be close up. I want to make sure the seams were all blended really well. Yeah, yeah. And everything was looking really good. I, I spent a lot of time putting the moss on my face, which was ground up green foam rubber that mm-hmm. you use for train um, yeah, yeah. landscaping. Uh, yeah, right. And uh, spent a lot of time. We got in the van and said we're going to uh, something something for the visually impaired. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, whatever. I look good. Whatever. So we got there, and the kids wanted to, of course, they want to touch your face. Mm-hmm. And that's how they read, you know, who you oh, are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the kids get up there, and they feel your face, and they feel everything's okay until they got down to the moss. Mm-hmm. And then the, I saw the kids, like, pull their hands away, like, yeah, what is that? <laughs> and then they explained to them, well, they're actors who portray these monster characters, and this is all makeup, mm-hmm. and this is what they do in Hollywood. They put makeup on. It was, it was pretty pretty fascinating. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just uh, doing, doing Austin Powers at Marilyn Manson's uh, birthday party. Wow. His 30th birthday party was hilarious. Um, doing Beetlejuice at Rob Zombie's uh, birthday party was fun. Doing Clifton on the floor of the San Diego Comic Convention. Oh, yeah. Doing Clifton at the uh, L.A. Erotica Convention oh, with yeah. about seven or eight chicky babes and three bodyguards. Nice. I mean, it was with a limo. I mean, it was just <laughs> unbelievable. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, so many great... Doing a, a short film we did called Living on a Prayer and getting to dress up in all these 80s clothes with, mm-hmm. like, Carmine Apice, one of the greatest rock drummers of all time, and right. and Bruce Kulick and all these people. And just, like, really... Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Playing dress-up is, is a good time. I'm not that interested in doing it anymore. Right. It's a lot of work. And it uh, is. You settle into voiceover, and when you get into the groove of just being able to go into the job in shorts and a tank top... Yeah. Be, being an on-camera actor doesn't seem so fun anymore. Dressing up for a convention doesn't seem so <laughs> fun anymore. Because I used to, every year, I would come up with some different character mm-hmm. for Comic-Con, as you guys do. Right. And one year it was um, 
the, the London After Midnight Vampire, but oh, I wanted to do yeah. it all in monochrome. Oh, cool. I didn't. I didn't want any color. Sure. So every the face was a complete different shades of gray monochrome. I had to make sure that all the fabrics didn't have any color in them. I wore uh, gloves that I had dyed gray, yeah. so it would look like you know gray hands. I had cake frosting dye, you know, dye that you would put in cake frosting to make uh, to dye the color of frosting a certain mm -hmm. color. Food coloring. Black yeah. food coloring. I would squirt it into my mouth yep, and yep. squish it around so you couldn't see, you know, any color of my tongue or anything. It was just all shades of gray. Yeah, yeah. The teeth were made in a, in a shade of gray. There was no white, no color at all. The only color, and I couldn't prevent this, was you'd see a little bit of red, you know, in my eye, yeah. like in the corners of my eyes. I had black contacts, so there was no color in my eye at all. Mm -hmm. So that that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, doing Batman at many different conventions with uh, a full group of villains, with Batman, Robin, Batgirl, Joker, Riddler, you know, Catwoman, right. Penguin, Mister Freeze, all these different characters. Wow. Was, was a lot of fun. What would you say your, your favorite costuming event or convention has been that you've done? Boy, Clifton was pretty fun. You can get away with a lot as Tony Clifton. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot. Simply because once Man on the Moon came out, everybody sure. was, was in on the joke. Mm -hmm. I would say walking around Las Vegas on Halloween, I think in 2000 or 2001, was probably one of the best times I had. Just you're in Vegas. Sure, it's Clifton. Yeah, uh, everybody seemed to know who he was because the movie had just come out. Um, I went to a casino. I wanted to sing karaoke. I was on the list to sing karaoke, but apparently in a casino, they have a rule where you can't come in with your face covered ah. at all. Huh. So the security guys started swarming around, you know, knowing that I had a prosthetic on, and you know they asked me to leave or take oh. the prosthetic off. Of course, yeah. you can't take the prosthetic off uh -huh. without chemicals. Yeah. So, uh, completely in character, I started yelling at the security guys. I'm never coming back here again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on the internet and tell you guys are sh are you're full of crap, and just like going off like right. Clifton would. But Clifton used to get kicked out because he was annoying and obnoxious. Yeah. He was this. I was being kicked out just because of a, a rule about covering your face. Right. But I was—I turned it into, uh, I, you know, you don't deserve me, and I'm going to sue you. You're placing you, and I'm going to do all of this, and I'm going to—I want to tell the press, and I'm going to. But everybody had seen Man on the Moon, so they knew it was all an act. Sure, so sure. there was no drama there. They didn't get excited. They didn't get mad. They uh, were just like, "Well, we're sorry, but that's our rule." And, yeah, yeah. But I kept kept it up, yelling and screaming, and the friends I was with thought it was really funny. <laughs> so the next day. I had my friend Reed, who was with me, I said, you know what would be really funny is to call up that casino and talk to the manager. And Reed was really good at this. Right. And say, well, I hope you know who you kicked out last night. That was Jim Carrey, oh. who's still in his Tony Clifton character from Man on the Moon. You just kicked out Jim Carrey. Wow. <laughs> so uh, that was that was pretty fun. But I think I'll never go to Vegas again on Halloween. It's just, I don't know. Too crazy. It's it's not too crazy. It's not crazy enough. I okay. mean, if you can't, what do you, I mean, just put on a Superman suit and just walk in with your face uncovered? What, that's not Halloween. Yeah. That's no fun. Yeah. So you think Vegas would be really cool for Halloween, but it's really not. Okay. Because otherwise, unless you just walk on the streets, then you're okay. But we did end up at a place where it was just, we didn't go into the casino, but we went into where there was a bar and there was a band playing. Mm -hmm. And they had me come up on stage and nice. they had him sing uh, some Queen song that they were doing. Because everybody knew who Clifton was, you sure, know. Sure, sure. So they said, hey, he'll come up and he'll sing a song. Nice. So it was, it was pretty cool. So running around as Clifton, running around as Austin Powers, driving with the top down of my convertible with a friend of mine who was playing Dr. Evil after a party. Yeah. We're cruising Sunset and this Bentley next to us with dark windows... Is kind of like keeping pace. Yeah. And somebody next to us said, Hey, you know who that is? And I said, No, who, baby? So that's John Travolta. What? I'm like, Really? <laughs> so we look over and we're like, Roll your window down, roll your window down. Mm -hmm. And we have him on video. I have a video of this because my friend Robert, who was Dr. Evil, was, was filming this. 
And he rolls down the window. It's John Travolta. And he goes, yeah, baby. And we yeah. go, we love you, baby. Peace, man. Peace. <laughs> it's just like, this would never happen if you weren't dressed as, you know, Austin Powers or something really crazy. Yeah. And it wasn't Halloween. We were just coming back from a party. So sure, sure. here's Austin Powers and Dr. Evil driving down the street, sunset, <laughs> on a Saturday night. Next to John Travolta, who rolls his window down, flashes a peace sign, and says, yeah, baby. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny. It's so random. <laughs> and uh, you know we used to Chris when he was Robin and I was Batman we would go up to uh, hospitals to see kids sure. just on a lark well, well let's go see some kids today and they can see Batman and Robin get some pictures you know make them feel a little better so we go up there and we're I'm like 21 and he's probably 17 at the time we don't think anything wrong but they're like oh we're sorry but we don't allow anybody in our we're in full costume sure and uh, we, we don't allow anybody in our children's wing. And I, I can kind of understand it now, but mm -hmm. from that at that point in time, I, I we were just trying to do something good, something right, nice, right. you know. And uh, <laughs> they said, no, you we, you can't come in. So I just said completely in character uh, as, uh, as Batman, Robin, when the intentions of Batman and Robin are questioned, it's a sad, sad world. <laughs> and we just turned around and walked out. <laughs> And the people, of course, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, they, they don't live here, so they're not used to that sort of thing. Sure. So they thought, who are those guys? Right. But then years later, we did do a big function in Sioux Falls to where we got pre-approved to go into the wings sure. of the different uh, children's hospitals. And, sure, sure. and they had a great time. You know, we got lots of photos with kids and, and kids in hospital beds and everything. So they love seeing the heroes. So yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Now, would you say you've got any, um, uh, uh, what I call the, the funny or embarrassing or costume mishap stories? None that I can think of. Mm -hmm. yes. you, were just, you were just too professional, yes. Wally. No, no, no. There's a time when Chris and I were doing a thing at the uh, Washington High School. We were doing a lot of Batman and Robin stuff. Mm -hmm. And they said it'll be really cool for this assembly where we have a Batman and Robin skit where everything is two guys come in dressed as a bad Batman and Robin and they're stealing stuff from the school like okay. TVs and stuff and then the real Batman and Robin Chris and Wally come swinging in on these ropes <laughs> I thought well that'll be kind of cool the capes will look good it'll yeah, be really yeah, awesome yeah. so but at the time my utility belt just snapped with oh, three snaps uh -huh. of course I and it was that big five inch yep. belt with the six inches really heavy. Mm -hmm. So I swing in and people are going nuts and the belt goes plop and then falls <laughs> on the ground. And I'm looking down, I can't see anything because of that cowl, you can't yep. see anything below. And uh, poor uh, Chris as Robin is trying to like put it on, but my cape's there, you gotta get it underneath the yeah, cape and it yeah. looked very embarrassing and everybody's you know, cheering and laughing and, and I just said something, and it wasn't snapping on. I said, so much for the bat diet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, poor Chris, he was sweating, trying to get the belt back on. And I was like, ah, oh, just let it go. What else can you do in that situation? Uh, nothing. You just got to laugh and go with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it probably helped make the night, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I often ask, uh, what's the strangest uh, misidentification you've ever gotten in uh, one of your costumes? Um, it might have been the man in the beaver hat because a lot of people don't know who that is. It's sure. a Lon Chaney character. They thought he was. Who did they think he was? Somebody else. I can't remember who they thought he was, but they they didn't know they didn't get that character. But uh, what was really funny in t about two thousand one uh, Halloween, I went out to the Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood for the Halloween carnival. Mm -hmm. I was dressed as the Adam West Batman. My friend Richard Horvitz was dressed as Robin. And my friend Christy was dressed as Batgirl. Okay. So you got these people, and they'd see Christy, and they'd go, Hey, Catgirl! Hey! <laughs> You're Catgirl. Catgirl. And they'd go, Boy Wonder! And then they'd look at me and go, Adam West! <laughs> it's not Batman anymore. Yeah. It's now Adam West. And I said in the, in the limo on the way back, because we rented a limo because the parking is crazy there. I said, do you realize that Adam has almost become 
bigger now than the character that he played. He's hmm. now people are like, it's not Batman. It's this is Adam West. Right. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. You know, Family Guy had been on for a couple of years, sure. so Adam West was becoming an icon. So it's kind of cool to think that Adam West has now almost kind of outgrown that character and has become kind of bigger in many ways than Batman. Oh sure. And a lot sure. of people that know him from Family Guy don't even know that he was ever ever Batman. They do maybe now because of the hub. Yeah. But I've heard people ask when they're standing in Adam's line with a with a Family Guy thing for him to autograph, and they see a guy with a Batman picture, they say, "Why do you have a Batman picture?" Oh, <laughs> well, he's I know generational. Yeah, this is not his line because he's on Family Guy. He was also, and they go, "Oh," so it's pretty funny. So, um, so for all the years that you've been doing this, what would you say is the most important thing you've learned doing this hobby? Uh, patience. Uh, patience with the costume. Another P word, preparation. <laughs> Don't wait till the day of the convention to put the costume on. Oh, yes. Um, much in the same way I spent a year working on that Elvis suit and putting mm-hmm. it on and seeing how it moves. I'm glad I didn't wear it for the first time that night when mm-hmm. we performed. Mm-hmm. Because I would have been like, ah, what's that? Oh, that's a stud that's like a wayward stud thong <laughs> right. that's you know embedded itself in my back. Mm-hmm. To, to give you time to actually, you know, correct those problems before you actually have to wear it for all day. So, you know, preparation, patience, because sometimes you put these costumes on, you think, oh, I'm just going to throw it on and do whatever. But it's like, well, this is taking a little while. I've got to do this. Some of the superhero costumes are kind of easy. It's boots, a belt, and tights, and a cape. But like the man in the beaver hat, Lon Chaney, when he originally did the character for the movie, had taken monocles mm-hmm. and pop the glass out so he had the wire rims and he put the wire rims in the sockets of his eyes to pull his eyelids open both oh, north and south wow. so his eyes would stare and have that weird so you'd see whites of his eyeball up the top and the, the bottom so he had those weird starey bulgy eyes mm-hmm. so we had to glue those in with Oof. spirit gum probably Oof. into the sockets of his eyes well they didn't it didn't you know, wasn't actually on his eye. It was mm-hmm. just the skin of his sockets. Well, I mean, when you wear a monocle, that's kind of how you keep it in your eye. Sure. Is it spread your, your eye open, but there's no glass in it, so it just looks like his eye is mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. And also the, the teeth that he made, the jagged vampire teeth, had a little cradle, a wire cradle built into the top of them mm-hmm. to keep his mouth open in this kind of ghastly smile. Mm-hmm. And while it wasn't the most expressive makeup you could ever use, because basically that's your face, and whatever emotion you're showing, you're just going to be that buggy-eyed, smiling, ghastly face. Mm -hmm. It was one of the greater makeups that he did, Uh, but it takes preparation. I I didn't do the monocle thing. What I did was I took some, um, what do they call it, derm something, Uh, but it's it's a tape that you use in hospital procedures to tape uh, bandages and stuff, it's kind of porous, like skin, mm-hmm. but it's a 3M product, so it's sure. like it's like a tape. But it's meant to adhere to skin pretty well. So I would cut little half, cr- like crescent moons, out of this tape, this derma or something, and stick it on the bottom of my eyelid, right underneath my eyelashes. Get a nu- like a quarter of an inch attached and then stretch my eyelid down Whew. and then attach the rest of it so my eye eye sockets looked like they were kind of sagging and I had those big bulgy eyes. Yeah. Then I'd have to put, um, you know, then I'd do the makeup. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's, it's, a long, it's a long process. Mm-hmm. And then you put the wig on, um, then, ho- you know, the hollow eye sockets and you blend those and the whole thing. Then you put the teeth in, then you put the the beaver hat on and the everything so it's uh you have to be patient you can't say i'm going to get up at eight o'clock and we'll be at the convention at nine yeah <laughs> you get up at eight o'clock you're there at noon yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah mm-hmm. sometimes it's not it's not so easy no but uh preparedness you know having all your makeup stuff there that you need and and all the costume stuff um taking needle and thread with you I, I never thought I would ever like put on my own buttons or sew my own stuff on or anything until I saw a picture of Lon Chaney sitting on the set in about 1922 mm-hmm. uh, patching his own costume. Huh. Yeah. I mean, back in the days before, you know, wardrobe, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. wranglers and makeup people, 
the actor did all their own stuff. Mm-hmm. They would sew their costume. They would pick their own clothes out. Chaplin sure, picked sure. his own clothes for the little tramp. For right. you know, uh, there was nobody saying, "Well, this is what you're going to wear," because the costumers guild says you have to wear this. I mean, he said, "No, this is my character, and this is what I what I'm wearing." It does make me wonder uh, from stories like that and, and Starsky and Hutch that it was more common back then for uh, a happenstance actors wearing this hey that's great let's use it or hey you found your costume that's great versus today where it seems like it's all very pre-planned and you know handing it to the actor yeah and almost overthought yeah in a lot of ways Uh, while Starsky did wear the sweater throughout half of the pilot he didn't wear the sweater that much in the in the series he went with like a kind of a cotton kind of windbreaker looking thing and a couple other things so that that stuff might have been given to him his only admonition to the costume people was I just want to be comfortable but I mean if you're the star of a show and if you really say I've got to have this for this character I think that probably will will veto any mm-hmm. costumer problems because they'll go to the producer and say he says he well you know what if that's what he needs for the character then that's absolutely what he needs and he has to have it so make it work right I, I mean I doubt it never happens anymore it just seems far less likely yeah, yeah I think so too well it's job security for the costumers they've got to validate their existence mm-hmm. you know but you know if an actor comes on the set and says this is the thing I need to be this character otherwise I can't I can't really do it then that's what they they have to kind of abide by it because you know sometimes actors are, are weird like that oh sure sure so uh, the last thing that uh, Marlon Brando ever did was a voiceover where he played an old lady mm. hmm. uh, for some cartoon and uh, some animated film and he actually did it the recording session dressed as an old lady huh. and he did the whole thing he, like halfway through he asked if he could take the wig off uh-huh. they said sure <laughs> whatever <laughs> they took the wig off and but he did the whole thing dressed as an old lady because he wanted to feel like an old lady. He was an old lady, yeah, yeah. exactly. I'll get him in the character. Yeah. I always also ask, uh, what is your uh, number one tip to beginning costumers? Research. Um, know your target frontwards, backwards, sideways. In the old days, it was a little harder to have a full understanding of what the target was because of limitation of resource material. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, it's fairly easy to find. Get on message boards, get all kinds of photos, get books, get, you know, whatever you can get. Screen grabs. Screen grabs, right. Mm-hmm. You could never do that in the old days. Blu-ray. I used, to, I used to basically sit there with a 35-millimeter camera and wait for Andy Kaufman to come on The Tonight Show. <laughs> and I would snap pictures. I think I still have them. Snap pictures of him on The Tonight Show. You know, you have to hand crank the film to the yeah. next frame. Ka-chunk. And you'd focus in on the TV screen, yep, yep. so you'd see all the pixels of the not the pixels, but the little you know dots of the TV screen. Yeah, and it's you know, but it was what it was. But I had to have that mm-hmm. in order to figure out how to do my hair, how did the sideburns look, you know, that kind of what the jacket looked like, and the aloha from Hawaii Elvis concert. Right. In order to show how I wanted my hair done, I just would take. Oh, that's a good shot. Click. You know, and then you have the film developed. Well, there you have instant pictures. Those were your screen grabs yep. the old-fashioned way. Yep. I know so, some other guys that did the same thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's so crazy. Yeah. Or a yeah. Polaroid, at least. Something. Right, yeah. yeah. You'd have to do it, but you'd have to do it with really fast film because you couldn't use a flash because it would glare in, in the screen of the, TV, yep. of the TV tube. Yep, yep. But, um, yeah, it's just preparation and knowing the material so well that you know every little stitch of that costume and every and if you can send a letter to the costume guild and find out who did the costumes and ask the person who did the real costumes they they might give you tips or whatever they might be more than happy to do it chances are they're in that business because maybe they were fans of something when they grew up so you just never know i I know of a couple of people who have had really good luck doing that exact thing that yes by all means every time find out the costume designer and write to them if, if you can reach them because uh I would say a good chunk of the time they're going to be very responsive, flattered, and happy to help. Um, Louise Page, who was the costume designer for the David Tennant era of Doctor Who, uh, was a guest at Gallifrey a couple of years ago, and she was terribly generous with her time and offering us advice and and, uh, specifics on fabrics for all of those costumes. I mean, 
Treasure Trove. Treasure yeah. Trove. Yeah, that reminds me of a great story. When we were just first doing Austin Powers, it was Halloween. We were on Sunset or Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood with my friend Rob doing Dr. Evil. And I hadn't had my own Austin Powers costume made yet. I just found something at a rental place that looked similar to what we wanted. A blue velvet jacket, a shirt with a frilly thing that we, I, we had made up, some velvet pants and you know it, it was close yeah i had the wig i had the glasses and i had some teeth that i had made up that looked like austin so we were walking around this was the halloween of i think 97 okay the movie had just come out that may right wasn't really that well received i remember by the general populace quite yet mm-hmm. it had to get on cable and, uh, and vhs, VHS yeah. and laserdisc and then people started discovering it so like a year later midnight showings all kinds of people showing up dressed as a character so we were really kind of ahead of the curve on the whole thing so we're walking down you know santa monica boulevard a couple of girls came up we said hey we're with dina appel the costume designer for Austin Powers, she's in there getting an ice cream cone right now at the thing. Can we get a picture of you with her? Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Wow. So she came out, gave me your information. She said, if you have ever have any questions, you know, let me know. So I called her. I said, I am going to make my own thing because I want to do this a lot. And she, what kind of fabric? Where'd you get it? She said, well, we had this, again, like the Beetlejuice costume, the, the awning material. Yeah. She said, I went to an upholstery store and oh, found yes. velvet upholstery yep. that was for chairs and, <laughs> and sofas and said, I love that color and just had just bought a bolt of the turquoise, another instance of how film interprets things, mm-hmm. Austin Powers' blue velvet suit from the first movie was turquoise. Huh. It wasn't blue. Huh. It, it photographed kind of a royal, maybe a little darker than royal blue, but was definitely greenish turquoise. Interesting. All due yeah. to the lighting, huh? All due to film stock. Yeah. How the film interpreted certain colors. Sure. And there's something about turquoise that probably doesn't film very well. Yeah, it'll shift one way or the Mr. other. Mr. Spock, uh-huh. Austin Powers, Superman, yeah. they're all kind of turquoisey. They photograph bright blue. Ran into that with one of the doctor's sweaters as well. Really? Mm-hmm. It's just film or whatever the medium is that interprets that, that color. Wow. So she was telling me, she sent me a swatch mm-hmm. of the original turquoise oh. fabric. Yeah. Um, I think she sent me some of the fabric that was left over from Austin's green and white polka dot shirt okay because at one point he was wearing the blue uh in the movie the blue velvet jacket and underneath he had a green shirt with white polka dots on it and she had some of that fabric left and it was just enough to make a shirt Mm -hmm. that was underneath the sleeve it wasn't enough for sleeves sure but Whatever part of the shirt you would see underneath the blue velvet jacket, there was enough to make that. Yeah. So I had that off from the original fabric of the. Nice. Thing. I thought I was I was swimming, wow. swimming in gold. Totally hog heaven. Yeah, and she was very good at you know telling us, you know some of the other fabrics that she used, and she said go to International Silks and Woolens, but don't go to the main store. Ask mm-hmm. to go to the one across the street. Mm-hmm. That's where all the vintage fabrics are that they save for film shoots and stuff. Oh. And, of course, there's all kinds of stuff. Right. That's where she got the lining for Austin's uh, jacket, whole bit. So she was very, very helpful. Um, and then when the time came for the second Austin Powers, she said that the cranberry-colored velvet um, that they used had been actually custom-dyed. Oh. So, but the... And then, of course, you go back and you try and find the turquoise velvet. It's They don't make anymore. Sure. So, so you're SOL there. But... Again, it's like, do I want it to look like the real Austin costume mm-hmm. on the set, mm-hmm. or do I want it to look like how people would see it and how they remember it from seeing it in the movie? Exactly. And I never got, I ended up going with the movie color, mm-hmm. and I never got beat up over it. But I, I sense that some people would have seen the turquoise and went, eh, it looks close, but it's not really, mm-hmm. it's like, hey, but yeah. that's the real color. Yeah. So you just uh, you just never know. Not everybody gets it. Right. Uh, I usually ask what people are working on right now. I know that you've essentially left the costuming world aside or behind. But what I'd like to do in its place is ask about uh, one of your last costumes, the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. Could you kind of go through that a little bit? Oh, yeah. 
That was another one where I felt like it was back in I was back in the seventies with no resource material to go by. Uh, all I had was um, an old bootleg many generations of the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. Ah, uh, yeah. From some con- comic book convention that some bootleg somebody had set. Because the tape has been out of print for so long. It has, yeah. It had been anyway. Yeah. yeah, and it was on Laserdisc, I think, for a while, but it's just, I don't know. And it's always been very dark. So another thing with that was uh, what colors to use for different things. Because things looked a certain color, like the mask looked like he had a gray nose and a gray mouth and gray eyes, but it's actually brown hmm. when you look at some of the close-up photos that are really good. And a lot of the set photos that they took back then were black and white. Yeah. So they didn't take a lot of color set photos. Right. And if they, if you ever did see a color photo, chances are it had been hand tinted. Yeah. So you're really looking at a limitation of source material. So this is all pre the DVD. This release. is all pre DVD release, right? Yeah. So I was just looking at all these things, trying to get some information, and I'm like, well, I think it's this, and I think it's that, and doing some screen grabs, and making up what I thought was a pretty cool scarecrow outfit. And then wearing it to a Halloween party thrown by Bill Farmer, who's the voice of Goofy for Disney. And uh, while I was at the party, some of the other Disney people were there. And they were just amazed because they were obviously Disney fans, too. They said, I remember that movie. Oh, my gosh, that's a great costume. Scarecrow, Romney, Marsh, Dr. Sam, blah, blah, blah. They said, hey, you know, that's coming on. We're releasing that on DVD. And I'm like, really? Finally? Mm -hmm. Then I found out that they were only releasing like 33,000 copies. I know. It just wasn't part of the Disney Treasury series. It just wasn't enough. And I said, well, that's not going to be enough. There's a lot of people into this movie. Oh, well, they don't care. They just want to get it out and just say that they they did. Uh Uh-huh. So, and Mark and I were having this conversation yesterday. I'd love to get that movie, but it's like $400 now. Oh, really? When it came out, it was, well, it's not 400 but when it came out, it was about, you know, 30-some dollars yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But now it's easily 200 uh, Yeah, 100-something, 200 uh, I'm glad I have two copies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I told my friend, uh, well, Scott Sebring, I said, go to Costco when next time you're there and buy all these you can get because oh, yeah. I want to have yeah yeah no he got me one too very yeah. happy to have it and it looks terrific and the print is amazing but uh, they asked if they could use the costume on a mannequin for the beginning of the bonus materials oh great and I said I yeah that's that. that's totally cool so <laughs> it was kind of putting the cart in front of the horse because had I seen the DVD, I could have made modifications of the costume to make it look even better. But because it was for the DVD and I hadn't seen the DVD yet, mm-hmm. the costume looks okay, but not as good as it does now. Mm. Uh, but again, it's that whole art of distressing the fabrics to make it look like it's tattered. been worn in and mm-hmm. tattered. So uh, taking the fabric, which was this old black kind of canvas... And it's a coachman's jacket, basically, with a double cape. Mm-hmm. And where the pockets are in the coachman's coat, that's where his real hands come out. Mm-hmm. And in the arms of the coachman's jacket are the sticks that make it look like the scarecrow oh, with yeah. the arms kind of flapping in the breeze. It's yeah, a yeah. brilliant design. Oh, yeah. And, of course, it's a tricorn hat that they used to wear back in the 1700s. Uh, but the tricorn has been detached. So it's just this big floppy hat now that's hanging down. Mm -hmm. And again, it's with the details. Oh, yeah. It'd be easy to take a floppy hat and a coachman's jacket and tatter it up a little bit and walk around. But if you look at some of the photos, they put, like, bird poop (laughs) on the hat Uh and and parts of the costume. So it looked like he had just taken it off a real scarecrow Mm -hmm. with some crow poop on it. And so there's these white splotches every once in a while. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty cool, really. Uh, the, the amount of detail. So it's a matter of taking the fabric, tattering it, um, getting it to the point where it's fraying <clears throat> in certain areas, and trying to fray that more, fray it a little less, take some sandpaper to it, wear it thin in some places, sure. take some uh, brown like primer, and just spray it in certain areas to look like mud had dried on it, like if he's riding through the marshes, you know, mud had dried. It's that same thing that I was talking about with the Heath Ledger Joker costume. Mm -hmm. It's just those little tiny details that sets it apart from a professional movie costume versus a 
convention costume. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I really, really want to distress this up so nothing looks new. So it absolutely looks like a scarecrow's costume. Mm-hmm. Totally. So the pants were pants I had had laying around for a long time. They were these old Freddy Krueger pants I, I used to use. And they were already kind of black and dingy looking. Uh, I found some English riding boots, and uh, I purposely wanted to find them not in good shape. Oh, yeah. Uh, but all the people that I was looking at on eBay were like, these are in beautiful condition, uh-huh. only been worn a couple of times. Like, uh-huh. I don't want the ones in beautiful condition. So I found size like 13, which was great for me because... While my feet are only 11, my calves are really big through years of walking in my paper route and jogging and doing other things. So if you're going to get boots that go over the calf, they've got to be a little bigger in order to... Yeah. Otherwise, I'm never going to get my calves. Yeah. My calves of doom. <laughs> so I found these. They work really well. Mm-hmm. Plus, I was having the pants tucked in right. to the boots, so yeah, that added yeah. another layer, so yeah. it had to be even bigger. So I, I took the boots, I distressed them, I took sandpaper to them, I did all sorts of different stuff, and really aged them, I thought, pretty well. Uh, the leather gloves I found were uh, gauntlet gloves. While they didn't look completely authentic to, like, 1777, mm-hmm. um, they were close enough. Again, distressing them at all the normal stress points right. where a glove would be worn mm-hmm. and worn in. Right. And, uh, you know, tattering the fabric and... It didn't look tattery enough, so I tattered it some more, sprayed some more, sometimes maybe a mist of gray to lighten it up in some areas to make it look like maybe the dye was starting to leave the fabric. Um, splotches of white, and then, um, of course, the, the brown for the, for the mud and stuff. And it ended up looking, I thought, pretty, pretty cool. It looked pretty cool for the DVD shoot with Leonard Maltin. Mm-hmm. But then after I saw the DVD, I was like, really, oh my gosh, this is so clear. So I repainted the nose and the eyes like brown yeah. because the original were brown. I tattered up some more. I trimmed the cape a little more around the shoulders. So it ended up working pretty well, but I, I do wish that I would have seen a better print of the movie before I did the DVD. Yeah. Because there's still, now that I see the DVD, I'm like, oh boy, it looks so much better now. But now I think it's pretty pretty exact because I've studied with the DVD and with the thing and it sits pretty close the way the contours of the, the double cape are and how it's kind of ripped and, and and it gathers in certain areas and stuff. So I, I'm pretty happy with it now. I was really impressed with it when I saw it at, um, at Comic-Con and it was uh, the mask. I mean, look, the whole costume is fantastic, but that mask is just a beautiful piece of work. I, I just think it nails it. Oh, thanks. The, the mask is uh, one of the great parts of that character. It's almost, like I said, as much of the character as Patrick McGowan Completely. is. Because the way the mouth is stitched, when he opens his mouth, part of it opens wider than the other part. Yeah. It makes it look like it's kind of like distorted. Yeah. And it's it's awesome. And Patrick McGoon says, no, in interviews on the DVD, he said, no, it wasn't glued to my face or anything. It was just, it fits so well. Uh-huh. But that's. But I think I can see it kind of glued around his mouth in some times. Sure. Where it just, it pulls down too perfectly. Uh-huh. So I thought, mm, I don't know if his recall on that was quite so good. Yeah. But yeah. it's a great, uh, it's a great character and scary. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing that as a kid and I've always liked Scarecrows and I saw that going, I gotta see this. This is, <laughs> this is awesome. It is a forgotten gem. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, I always ask, uh, do you have any uh, current or upcoming projects you want to talk about? Uh, not for costuming, but just, you know, for, oh, for listeners. Oh, uh, just, you know, the usual uh, Tonight Show with Jay Leno uh, every weeknight at uh, 11.35 uh, Pacific and Eastern. I'm the announcer, and I do other voice uh, work for that. Uh, working on a cartoon called uh, The Garfield Show. It's going into its fourth season on Cartoon Network. Uh, just wrapped up a cartoon and anime show called Tiger and Bunny. Uh, doing the old Navy ads right now. I'm the voice of the bobblehead on the Titan Insurance commercials. I'm also the voice for U.S. Airways phone line system. That when you call to make a reservation, you'll talk to the mechanical version of me. <laughs> doing a video game tomorrow for Marvel Universe. I get to play Hank Pym again, as well as Reed Richards, which is pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah, just little by little, all kinds of stuff. There, there's another video game coming up where I think the Riddler uh, is going to return. Because I was the Riddler in the Batman Arkham City and Arkham Asylum games. Oh, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, um, yeah those games are amazing. And you just never know what will be coming up next. So 
Pretty exciting. I recommend everyone check out uh, www.wallywinger.com. I'll be posting that link along with uh, some of these photos of things we've been talking about. Um, but or this, if you can't spell Winger, it's wallyontheweb.com. That works too. There you go. Yeah. Uh, there you go. I'll post them both. So, uh, but this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Bob. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, and uh, you know what? Since you're the pro, would you mind signing us out from Costume Station Zero today? All right. Uh, <clears throat> Thanks for joining us on Costume Station Zero! See you next time! <laughs>